quite honestly, <laughs> naming conventions, people are like, how do you come up with names? And sometimes it's easy as it looks cool or it just makes sense or let's just try it. And you say, well, that can't be. It is. From the Toyota North American headquarters in Plano, Texas, this is Toyota Untold. Toyota Untold isn't just about cars. Cars will come up, of course. We love cars. But this show is about people and their stories. And what's the first thing we learn in any story? The title. So here's the story behind the title of this podcast about stories. I think as new employees, which many of us who host or who are behind the scenes of this podcast are, we're newer employees. We haven't been here maybe the 20, 25, 30 years that some other team members have been here. But I think the first thing that struck me personally when I joined was the stories that people had. And not just the typical ones that you read in a press release or you see through a commercial. The stories about people and about the vehicles being made or how vehicles came to be made or how a process was fixed so that team members' time was helped greatly or a process was made more efficient. Those are the things that you can't hear or read if you're not inside the company. So why I wanted to be a part of it was to take those stories and tell people about them and to make sure that people knew that this isn't a company that just were in the factory getting car after car after car out. That's true. We are. But there's so much that goes into making a car, the people behind it. There's a lot of love and care and quality and safety that goes into making a car and making sure that you get it at a great price at the dealership and that you're satisfied with your experience. That a car is not just a thing. It's an emotion. And I think I've heard someone say before, no one feels this way about their refrigerator. A car is deeply personal to people. And so we wanted to take those deeply personal stories from the people who work at Toyota or who have interacted with the brand on some level and bring them to people just to let them know that it's not maybe just a Toyota thing, but there's a lot of care and compassion that goes into building a car and especially here at Toyota. And we felt it was important to tell those stories. A large global company like Toyota can seem monolithic, mm -hmm. too big to comprehend. Right. And yet the experience of, of working at Toyota, of producing Toyotas is very personal. Each person who works here has a kind of a personal mission. Mm -hmm. They believe in what they do. Like Tyler, I'm new. And I think for those of us who are here at this change moment, it isn't just that you know, we are bringing our best to this company is that the company is undergoing a, a major shift in how it helps people. We're all being challenged to be part of this uh, changeover to a mobility company that expands what that means. It's quite personal for all of us. We all have a personal story of somebody who probably could use the innovations and the research and the hard work that goes on behind the scenes. And so that's why we wanted to bring you Toyota Untold to get those stories out that we get to see and hear every day, but that we felt that you as listeners would find interesting about the car industry and how the car industry is changing. And the reason it's Toyota Untold is these stories simply haven't been heard before. The content of the podcast is new. We are mining some deep history but this is history that has not been explored outside of, you know, some pretty fun water cooler conversations. So we're bringing that intimate look to you, the public. So now we're going to go to Nan Banks, director of the Toyota Center for Communications, to share some behind the scenes stories about the origins of Toyota and how the company got its name. We're here talking to Nan Banks, who's on the corporate communications team, and she's in charge of a lot of different things, including the Experience Center, Center for Communications, she, which has our archives in it too. She knows a lot about Toyota. Hi, Nan. Hello. <laughs> Welcome. Welcome. Thank you. Though Toyota first came to America in 1957, it's important to go back much further than that to tell the story of how Toyota came into being. Those beginnings have a lot to do with where we are right now and where we're going in the future. We're always connecting the dots, which means we have to start in the 1930s to explain the big changes the company is initiating here in the second decade of the new millennium. We're going to go back. Kelsey, are you ready? We're going to go way back. Sure, I'm ready. Let's go back to the 1930s. Many people might not know that Toyota was not always a vehicle company. No. We did not start there. No, we started off as the uh, Toyota 
Automatic Loom Company. And Automatic Loom Works. That's crazy. Why? And auto, yeah, it was textiles. Why? Why? Well, that's where um, <laughs> Saikichi Toyota decided that that's what he wanted to do. He saw his mom uh, working at a loom, and the company was making regular looms at the time, and he looked at how hard she had to work. Mm-hmm. And that image and and that stress, he thought there's got to be a way to, to alleviate that. And so he was the inventor of the first and then many other automated systems within the looms that made them much easier to work. And probably the big claim to fame was that uh, the machine would stop if it made a defect. Mm-hmm. And you can imagine somebody working on a loom with their feet and their hands and they're moving the shuttle back and forth. Mm-hmm. And then to look up and see that they had made a mistake about an hour ago. The famous Toyota production system, TPS for all you manufacturing and office space fans out there, has its roots in weaving, not cars. After all, whether you are making a textile or a vehicle, quality depends on process and care. And starting over is... Soul-crushing. Yeah. Yeah. And it's really where the whole uh, continuous improvement and respect for people intersect. Because to to be able to help someone not to make that mistake or to make that mistake visible immediately mm-hmm. so that, that, as you put it, that soul-crushing thing didn't happen was was really a, a, a breakthrough in, in automation. Mm-hmm. And I think it just says, or it says something about the time. So like Loomworks and the textile industries was really popular at that time. It was where all the business was. And I'm sure looking at being an automotive company at that point was kind of like, a real stretch. Toyota's beginnings were personal, but also much bigger than simply offering relief to workers. At the time, Japan was undergoing a transformation into greater industrialization. Just like today, innovation and inspiration were needed to move the burgeoning new economy forward. They were the premier manufacturing right. company. Right, so they could make anything, right? They, could, can... <laughs> they could make anything work. And they just had, they had a reputation for, for doing yeah. that. And Kaichiro Toyota had always wanted mm-hmm. to, to go yeah. into the automotive industry. Right. So that, that's, how, that's how that happened. They could make anything and make anything work. It was the application of vision and mindset as much as a product niche to fill that spurred a major shift. And so, I mean, basically was like, okay, this is a no-brainer. They kind of wanted to do it. Fantastic. So they're going to start this company. They had the automated loom works, right? And then he says, okay, I'm going to make Toyota Motor Corporation. But I'm not going to spell it like my last name with a D because Toyota, Akio Toyota, who's our current CEO, is T-O-Y-O-D-A. Right. But obviously our company name is T-O-Y-O-T-A. Right. So what gives? What gives? Well, there's a whole cottage industry of myth that goes around this. So let's 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 break it let's break it down a little bit. Keiichiro was was kind of a marketer and he actually crowdsourced the name of the company. He put out a, a marketing campaign that said, you know, give us ideas for what we're going to name the automotive company and got some and then sent those ideas off for people to vote on it. And there there's several different uh, interpretations of how this happened. The first one is probably the most likely is that Toyota with a T was written with eight strokes in katakana, the, the writing. Mm-hmm. And Toyota with a D took 10 strokes. So it was shorter, but it's also luckier. Eight is a lucky number in Japanese culture. So that's probably the most likely description, and more people voted for that than anything else. Hmm. Now, another suggestion was that Kaichiro thought that the Toyota with a T was easier for some foreigners, for some (laughs) non-Japanese to pronounce. Hmm. And that since he had this image for a global company, that's what he wanted to go to. Uh, And then there was a, a third possibility that he just wanted to be contrary (laughs) <laughs> right. You, you know, I'm yeah. not going to have daddy's name. I'm going to put another name on my company <laughs> and we're going to call it uh, Toyota with a T. Interesting. So, Can you imagine now if you had, if you left that, I mean, the jerks in social media who take over the contest now for naming something. That's why we have a Bodie McBoat face right now as a, <laughs> as a ship in the, the sea because that's what people named it. You mm-hmm. know, I can't even imagine if we had social media back then on what 
Toyota Motor Corporation could have been named now. What could it have become? I know, really. <laughs> okay, so let's go back. Let's wait. I want to go back again. The family tree. Who was the son who started the Loomworks company? His name was Sakichi Toyota. Sakichi Toyota. Okay. And so he helped his mother with her loom abilities and he started to build automated looms. Yes. So then he had a son, Kiichiro. Mm hmm. Now, at some point in that adventure, somebody went, one of them went to America to study the Ford assembly line. Isn't that well, right? They went, they actually went to Europe to study the um, man, motor manufacturing there. Mm -hmm. And then they also did, yes, come to the United States, studied Ford particularly. Mm -hmm. And that was in advance of them creating their company or afterwards? That was kind of in the middle, I think. Okay. I don't think, I think that was, it was all in that 30s yeah. so when period there. In their Genshi Genbutsu, mm -hmm. which for all of you means go and see. It's a practice that we still use today. And so it's just the art of going and looking at something at a problem. Putting eyeballs on it. Yeah, before you take a crack at solving it. So they went to go see other assembly lines and then figured out their best plan of action when they got back. And basically, didn't they come back from that trip trip and be like, we can we can do what they're doing in Detroit. Mm -hmm. We can do it way better. There was that aspirational <laughs> point of view. Yeah. Yes, there was. We think we can make improvements on what we saw. And then there we get into a whole lot of other people that start to get involved. Um, Taiichi Ono, who's the father of the Toyota production system, also comes in. And something he had observed in American supermarkets was the way that they were stocked and that when someone took cereal the night, that night they went in and they checked and made sure, okay, three cereals got sold. We're going to get three more of those on the shelf so that they'll be ready to go uh, the next day. And then it got down to almost an hourly refurbishing. And this, this is where we got our Kanban system. Mm. What is Kanban? Kanban is sort of like a, a first in, first out. It's, it's constantly replenishing so that you always have what's needed, when it's needed, and in the right amount. Japanese organizational principles create the foundation of the Toyota way. And if you've read or watched Master Tidier, Marie Kondo in action, you have a sense of how the culture gave rise to core practices such as Kaizen, which is continuous improvement, and just-in-time delivery, which is not too soon, not too late, just in time. It really helps to remember sometimes why this company was created in the first place. It was literally for a son to help his mother. Mm -hmm. If you can imagine, Loomworks is like really kind of tedious, arduous work. And so he wanted to make his, his mom's life a little easier, a little better, so that she wasn't spending all of her time wasted on, on work that had maybe been messed up 20 minutes ago. And mm -hmm. so as we move forward and we think about mobility and all of the things that we're working on to make people's lives easier, to make their work easier to make just moving from across the room a little easier. It's important to tie that back to why we're here in the first place. Totally agree. Going back a little bit then to the the naming of, of the company, mm -hmm. at the same time that they did that crowdsourcing for the name, they did crowdsourcing for the logo. It took five years to design the Toyota logo. Precision counts, and this was one job that wasn't to be rushed or redone. Remember, the very name of the company was adjusted to a more favorable number of brushstrokes, and the Toyota family name is on every vehicle. I actually brought something because I, it gets really complicated, so I wanted to, to just take you through how this logo was actually designed. All right. You ready? Preach, okay. man. So, and just for everyone's knowledge, it's the, it's the logo that is on, if you have a Toyota vehicle, the one that's on the front, the silver... We call it five different, it took five years and five different names. The bug, the ellipse, the sombrero. Yeah, yep. but Nan's going to go through all of those things. So in Radio Land, close your eyes and imagine <laughs> the Toyota logo. Now, the two perpendicular ovals inside the large oval, okay? That's the heart of the customer and the heart of the company. They overlap to represent the mutually beneficial relationship and trust between each other. You following me on this? Okay. Yeah, I'm okay. with you. The overlapping of the two perpendicular ovals inside the outer oval creates the symbol T. There it is. For See, Toyota. I knew that part. And it also resembles a steering wheel representing the vehicle itself. That I did not know. Hmm. The outer oval 
We're working our way out. The outer oval symbolizes the world embracing Toyota. Of course. Why wouldn't they? (laughs) Lovely. Each oval is then contoured with different stroke thicknesses, similar to the brush strokes that we see in Japanese art. Hmm. There's one more thing you need to know, though. (laughs) Okay. Lay it on us. All right. The engineers and designers that were trying to make this logo, they had one restraint. It had to be the same as you looked at it straight on and as you looked at it in a mirror. Oh. Oh, in a rear view mirror. So, yeah. think about all that's going on here with the hearts of the customer and the company. You got the and head, the, the T, and the steering wheel, and you got to have it look the same in a mirror image as it does in a straight on image. That's what took five years. <laughs> I mean, lot. all of that just to go, be stuck on the front of your car. <laughs> And the back. I mean. So we got the best logo. And wait a minute. Is, wasn't there, because you see the T, yes. But Kelsey, you had another piece of info. You know what? There. I think I made that up. No, I like, I like it. Well, go ahead. We like it. I, Kelsey, okay. I think you should talk. So I think that if you look at the ellipse, ellipses. Or Everybody find ellip- a Toyota vehicle near you. <laughs> it looks like the two circles that are inside the big circle. To me, it looks like it spells Toyota. So obviously, we've already said that the two circles meet each other to make a T. And then the one in the middle by itself is an O. And then if you remove, if you look at the two circles, it's, it's also a Y. Mm-hmm. And then all the letters, obviously, I just said, go mm-hmm. back again. And then the A includes the outer circle. Yeah. And so it has a cross in the middle. So I thought that it... Or literally, I thought it spelled Toyota. But... I think I made that up. I really don't think I heard that anywhere. We're actually going to make that a thing now. (laughs) Yeah. Like all the engineers, all the marketing people, they're all going to be like, she is so wrong. I think that was one of those really good bottles of Merlot that you have at home (laughs) that um, popped out one night and (laughs) And made its way into a speech. Well, you know, I'm like like kind of creative. Like I'm a writer. So I'm like trying to find the like, you know, artsy part of everything. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well... If you ever wanted to know the uh, in-depth detail about the logo on your Toyota vehicle, now you know. What kind of bottle of Merlot was that from? <laughs> Honestly, if it was recently, it might have been a Pinot Noir because it just okay. took a trip to Portland. <laughs> so I've got a couple. I've got a couple left. Thanks, Nan, for our first lesson of Toyota History 101. For our second lesson, we're going to jump a few decades into the future to the launch of the Scion and Lexus brands. I still hear from people that they don't know that Lexus is part of the Toyota brand. And in the process, we're going to learn what goes into picking a name. It seems like it should be easy, doesn't it? We're here today talking with Keith Dahl, who is the General Manager of Project Planning and Management. Hi. Welcome. I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. Of course. So we just started to get into it a little bit and we were talking about it. But so project planning and management, you guys basically look at a vehicle life, right? From conception into development. Uh, and beyond. <laughs> uh, <laughs> That's a lot. That's heavy. It's, uh, yeah, it's it's overseeing the, uh, the vehicle from, from the time it's uh, approved and, and designed through development, through... Uh, uh, production planning and through production and right up until it's launch of production. How does a product even come into development? Do you identify a need? Does a person say, hey, you know what I think we need? We need blank vehicle. We need a smart car competitor. We need a something destroyer. <laughs> well, there's a, uh, there are a lot of different entities that weigh in on that. Mm-hmm. Obviously, uh, strategic planning and uh, sales and marketing and things like that. I, I will tell you that um, as a lifelong car enthusiast, as I am, in fact, um, my mother would say I liked cars from before I could even talk. And she <laughs> proved that by showing me a couple of little toy metal cars I had when I was a kid. But <laughs> as a lifelong car enthusiast, seeing that early uh, birth of a car like you just described is never ceases to be fascinating to me. I'm I mean, sure. Sitting in a meeting where it uh, literally would get a thumbs up or thumbs down and and then seeing it come to life eventually is absolutely fascinating. To learn a little bit more about that fascinating process, we sat down with Jack Hollis, Group Vice President and General Manager, Toyota Division, who's probably a familiar face if you've been following us on social. And I mean, if you're not, what are you waiting for? 
Jack, you're like the superstar of all of our live streams that we do, right? <laughs> you got a low bar, I guess. I, well, I mean, you just get to do it. You, I mean, you, you're high energy. You get yeah. to unveil all the cool cars. That's awesome. Yeah. yeah. So how long have you been with Toyota? Wow, I've now been 26, going on 27 years. How did you start with Toyota? Wow, not necessarily on purpose. Yeah, I should tell you this. So I actually started in 1992. I actually came to the company, the kind of the end of the story is I came to the company because um, I wanted a great name on my resume. And that's Same. Why, that's it. <laughs> not, and, and, and now 26 years later, it's because... It's still the only name on your resume. <laughs> <laughs> it's because I couldn't find another job. Yeah. Um, actually, no, it's because of the people that I yeah. met and I stayed. Yeah, I'll give you a quick story. All right. About 1981... I started working at uh, my my father was a professional golfer, mm -hmm. and I played and I, and I and I and I was a golfer, but I also worked at the country club. And I was, but I was a, I was a baseball player. I was pursuing it in both in high school. And I was able to move on through high school, through college, um, and and then went on to be able to sign up. This is a casual aside. Yeah. <laughs> Jack was a professional Just baseball player. <laughs> I'm I only sharing it because it matters later. No, if I was any good at baseball, golf. I wouldn't be in the car business. Obviously, <laughs> no. I would have made it there. However, <laughs> it was great. I actually had this opportunity to fulfill a lifetime dream, which yeah. to play professional baseball. I yeah. love the humble brag. No, oh, no, no, it was amazing. No, but but during that time when I was in in in, in working at the country club, I would meet a lot of uh, men and women who were executives. And it happened to me one time. I met a guy who was driving a car, mm -hmm. but it had no badges on it. There was no badging. Mm. What? Yeah, there was no badging on a car. It was a very small little red sports car. A guy gets out, and he was driving a Japanese passenger. Oh, well, that was great. So I took their clubs out of their car, put them on a cart, talked to him about. Tell me about your car. He tells me all about it. I don't tell anybody it's a Toyota, but here's what we're doing. It's a, it's a prototype of a vehicle we're looking at. Well, it turns out that this gentleman says, and Jack, if you ever get done with playing baseball, come allow Toyota to interview you. I said, why? He says, we love hiring athletes. I said, why? He said, because, you know, athletes of team sports, they learn how to work together. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I understand you were the captain of your team. I said, yeah, I was the captain of the team. And he says, we also like people who can lead from a team standpoint. Well, either way, to cut to the, the lot of things happened. Baseball got done. Had to retire from the sport. I was looking for a job. And I remember that I got a business card from that guy that day. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But he didn't have his title on the card. Why was he so secretive? <laughs> International man of well, mystery that's why I Toyota. didn't know. And I still to this day can't tell you why. But it was just a card. And it said, Bob McCurry. Oh. And he gave me, and he said, here's my number. And the number's on the card. And Bob McCurry, for those of you who don't know, was one of our former presidents and yeah. the leader of our company who really mm -hmm. grew us uh -huh. in this country. Right. That guy that, you know, as you might imagine, he led me to get a couple of interviews. Yep. Um, actually, quite honestly, I didn't even like the first two interviews. I said no to the company because I was like, Man, these interviews, they weren't the people that I wanted to be associated with necessarily. I told him that. He said, let me set up a couple different interviews. Yeah. <laughs> I had three new interviews the next day. Those three people are still probably the three of the people that I remember so well because it got me excited about joining yeah. the company. And yeah. I came in and that was Was it, it a different division that you came in? Like when he was like, oh, let me, different people. Was it a different or same area, just different people? Oh, it was just, I think that the first two was, was very, they were part of an HR team who was just used to yeah. doing these. And I think he wanted me to see the business yeah, and yeah. I wanted to see the business. Of course. And so he gave me uh, actually three people from different parts of the business. But I came in as a management trainee and just wanted to learn. And I thought I'd be here for a year. And I moved back on into a sports somewhere. Mm -hmm. And every single year since then, more and more people I met and this company and the people and the influence and the teamwork has been nothing but great. So what was the car? So the car was the original MR2. Oh my God, people are going to go nuts. The car, they the MR2 the was the MR2. first car and they brought it up and it was still in prototype stage. And they were so excited about showing to me. They, as a matter of fact, Bob actually gave me a drive and the, the next day he came <laughs> back. So it was a Saturday I met him. I came back on a Sunday. And I, he let me, he said, you know, I'll drive you around. So he drove me up around uh, in Palos Verdes, right around Rolling Hills Country Club, came back. And that was, kind of got me fired up for... Right place, right time kind was. of thing, huh? Man. Nice. All right. Let's get into <laughs> naming vehicles. Oh. Yeah. So, Such an easy thing. So for, I mean, maybe briefly go over your, because you were with Scion. Yes. Is Did you start or what? at what point did you get into the Scion what? brand. Why did Scion happen? And let's talk happen? about Scion. <laughs> Where is Scion? Why did Scion happen? Oh my gosh, you guys are giving me these topics that can go on forever. Uh, Scion was awesome. Loved it. It was a vision um, at the time between our, our current CEO, Jim Lentz, 
our Japanese president at the time, or the leader of, the, of North America was Mr. Yoshi Anaba. Mm -hmm. And it was this idea of how do we, within a company, be innovative and to really reach youth? And how do we do it differently? And they came up with a tr tremendous strategy that went through uh, many iterations. And then we rolled out with our dealerships. And um, the whole idea was, was to not be your common, normal automotive company, but was to be really drawing in some of the best from every company out there, but also non-automotive. It was really to reach youth in a different way. Okay. And so sign was great. And I was actually working for Mr. Nava in his office when this was, you know, starting. Mm -hmm. And then later on, after multiple jobs and moving around, you know, the field organization, you know, I was in the San Francisco region, the Denver region, and get a chance to work with the president of the company. And then I worked with our private distributors down in SET and GST and, and the Gulf State region and Southeast region. Then they came to me and said, we want you to come in and run the Scion division. And I said, well, I'm not young. <laughs> I'm not cool. I don't understand <laughs> what the heck you want me to do. I'm like, you, have, you picked the right guy. Are you sure? It didn't take but about 90 days to get in there to one, did prove that I wasn't young enough and not cool <laughs> enough. But it was, it was great to go in and to start to learn all the things I didn't understand. Yeah. Right. And for the company, that was what we were trying to do, not only for our own employees, as a business mm -hmm. and we got to do everything not traditional yeah right? and i got it, it, it all my creative juices started to 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 flow and being a part of something that had no rules and that was what was really fun about signing to this day i still miss it but it was the right thing because it was an, it was not only an experiment it was testing a lot of things but the goal was was to make toyota and lexus stronger right okay. and at the end of its tenure when scion had basically fulfilled that promise mm -hmm. to ourselves. We did the right thing. And we had to say, it's now time to move on. We've, we've learned this. We've made the business stronger. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't mean that we won't bring back new innovative ideas and brands like we're seeing today. Yeah. Like the mobility devices and different right. elements. But what it did for our company was tremendous. So basically what you're saying is the point of Scion was to try to reach a different demographic and also to test these vehicles so that they could be implemented in our in our flagship brands. Absolutely. Okay. And because many of the products that we brought through Sign here were Toyota products around the globe. Oh yeah. Like what? Right. Well, when we brought over, you know, the, one of the one of the one of the favorites of Sign is always the the the, the boxy car. People are like what? the toaster. The toaster coming over. <laughs> and that was one of the perfect examples. We were selling it as a Toyota. Uh -huh. The XB, right? Well XB here. Yeah. In Japan it was the BB. Mm -hmm. And it was like, what is a BB? And it's, why is a box coming here? Now, think about it. We brought this box over. Right. Tremendous success, which we weren't even sure. But it was a total test. Yeah. We actually had a lot more confidence in a different vehicle, a little sedan, a little hatchback, the, uh, which ended up being the XA. And it turned out that the public really liked the XB more. The box. The box. It started a trend of companies coming out with box right, cars. Box cars. Yeah. yeah. Toyota was at that time really wanting to reach youth. We brought this car out. All of a sudden now Scion is it. Scion's bringing in this, in this youth and it started this momentum mm -hmm. and it became this trendsetter even in the industry. But that why, was so it was a BB in Japan. Why XB here? You know what? You want to know the real answer? Yes. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I want the real answer. Give me answers, Jack. We want to know why the yeah. vehicles are named what they are anyway. But why? <laughs> well, I mean, I, quite honestly, <laughs> naming conventions, people are like, how do you come up with names? And sometimes it's easy as it looks cool. Yeah. It sounds cool. Or it just makes sense. Or let's just try it. Yeah. And you say, well, that can't be. It is. <laughs> no, but and, and it is. That, that's true. When the vehicles came over, though, there was this idea of, of, of changing. You know, all of our Toyota and, uh, vehicles had names. You right. Know, you had a Camry yeah, like and a Corolla yeah. and, and yeah. Tundras. And you're like, what do all those mean? Each one of those, we can give you a story on each one of those. When Scion came over, it was like, well, we didn't want to name the car. We wanted to do something different. And it became, how do you make something very simple? Mm -hmm. The X could, it could you know, people, you cross over. Yeah, that might have meant. Because the XB, when it's coming over, was kind of a crossover vehicle. Is right. it really a car or is it a SUV yeah. or what is it? There's no direct answer. I'm not going to try to give you the magic. But what it was, was to make things simple. Mm -hmm. A was our first car. B was our second car. What would you think our third car was? C. C. <laughs> well, then why was it called a TC? What happened to the X's? The car. <laughs> I don't know. You don't know. And I'm Does not anybody gonna, know? And I'm not going to tell you. <laughs> but how about the fact that it was a Toyota T Coupe C? Seriously. Come on. Toyota Coupe. 
I'm going to, uh, until I, you know, until I'm on the, you know, lie detector test, I'm going to, let's go with that. <laughs> so all the high schoolers in like the early 2000s, the cool kids who drove yeah. the TC, it stood for Toyota Coupe, just FYI. It could have been, or the Coupe. I mean, that's worse. Get out your sidekicks, everybody. <laughs> Is it worse? It's not worse. Because what was the next vehicle that came out? I don't know. What comes after C? I mean, Come D. on, people, do I need to teach you D. this? D. <laughs> I'm X. trying to think what it was. It was an XD. D. I didn't know there was an XD, though. Yeah. What did it look like? Come on, ladies. Oh, I need to give you a full on Scion history lesson. <laughs> I was moving I was swiftly too when into you... my mom mobile, my Highlander. <laughs> I was too oh, no. when you started with the company, Jack. Give me a break. Oh, my gosh. Now we're. Listen, shout out to Millennial Kelsey. <laughs> this podcast is just about over my ancient age now. Okay, well then, what was the next one after the XT? What should we? What, what, I mean, I we should go e, e, but I you feel like are, it went to I. You guys have no idea what you're talking about. We no. went to Q. What comes after D is Q. Of course. And that's Naturally. why we called it an IQ. See, I got the I. I knew there was you, an I in you, there. You were trying to cheat. No, I. No, I, I, no there was IQ. And quite honestly, the naming convention of these was to fit and to be different, mm -hmm. to be able to test new kinds of. I mean, if we're going to test names, why not check? You know, two letters. Yeah. Well, wait a second. How about the sign FRS? That's three letters. Every single time we went through this was to change so that no one knew and it had an expectation of they couldn't guess what we were going to do. Our hmm. goal was to always stay a step ahead, try yeah. something new. Why did it do this? And I say that because we learned a lot about naming and what it meant mm -hmm. and how the marketing could be tied into that. Mm -hmm. So I was telling you, it, it was fun. But what you don't know is how do we come up with each of those names is what we would do is we literally have a board, a chalkboard or a whiteboard in the middle of the scion. There was a pillar. Mm -hmm. Our office was this cool industrial sited building. And you, and you come in and we would have sliding boards with just names on it. And every person, every single Toyota employee, scion employee, a vendor, any partner, just come in. And when you're Take in there, you put a name. Well, what do you think a name should be? Look, take a look at this car. What should the name be? And we would go through that. And that's really how we would start. And then we would go through the normal you know, progression of testing it legally and make sure phonetically and all this. And we would come up with names in each vehicle. And that's why there was a lot of creativity over time, over yeah. different names. XA to XB, a TC, an XD, an IQ, an FRS. Yeah. And just so you know, as we go through that, it was really a lot of fun to be a part of. What about the name Scion though? Is that, does that have significance to the brand? Yeah. Scion, as a matter of fact, today you'll, you'll hear Akio Toyota uh, named as the scion of the Toyota family. It's kind of the generational or the leader of or the continuation. So scion is that leader on or the generation following, right? So the scion mm. is the leader and following. And so scion was a transcendent or a, 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 a following of Toyota. So that scion one's kind of deep. Yep, can, deep. Can, can I ask on something? It's a Toyota urban legend and Kelsey and I can't confirm mm. or deny from anybody. Uh, the Toyota emblem, the bug, the <laughs> ellipse. Mm-hmm. Does it spell Toyota or is that just we're making that up? I'd like to tell you, but then I'd have to kill you. Okay. <laughs> and I can't reveal that on this podcast. I feel well, like I, I already said that it. Is, that's I just a, said that's a company I secret. It <sighs> it's a company secret. I mean, it does. Like you can secret. see I mean, it, I had to have gotten it from somewhere. How would I have just made that you up? You are an executive speechwriter, so you read a lot of they stuff. They don't tell me that much stuff. <laughs> the, people call it the bug. People call it the sombrero. Yeah. yeah. The ellipse. The ellipse. The ellipses. Yep. But I'm gonna let you go with whatever you think out there. All right, uh, I'm going with it. Okay, so it's true. They're all they're all right. Kelsey and I think it's true. They're all accurate. Nan Banks taught us about the origins of Toyota. Jack Hollis taught us about how a car gets its name. Now we're gonna go back to Keith Dahl so he can teach us about Lexus, even before it was called Lexus. How did you get into Toyota? I will give credit to the woman sitting next to me in my. Um, graduate school, MBA program, uh, one of those last capstone classes where you do all okay. the assimilating all your studies there. And she walked in one day with a, with an mm -hmm. advertisement that Toyota had for, uh, for uh, somebody in, uh, to find somebody in logistics. And, uh, and I was actually kind of far down the road with some other job offers at that point. But as I mentioned, I, I just, I love everything about cars. Mm -hmm. and I, like, I have to look into this. And, uh, so the short answer is I literally answered an ad. <laughs> That's awesome. So starting with your first job in logistics, I guess, what did that entail then? And then how long were you in that job? 
So back in that time, I'm dating myself a little bit here, <laughs> but uh, uh, Toyota didn't manufacture anything in North America at that time. So all the vehicles were, uh, were you know, arrived on ships from Japan. Mm -hmm. And so my job entailed uh, planning the different aspects of uh, port processing, the things that have to be done to the car when it arrives and by whom, and then uh, planning the network by which they would be distributed to dealers. Uh, interestingly, not long, maybe a, two years or so after I had that job, I was in sort of a planning role within logistics. Mm -hmm. And about two years after that, I was approached about the idea of planning a distribution network for hypothetically a new channel of cars. Let's <laughs> say they were luxury cars. Just hypothetically. Hypothetically. Right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Let's say they were luxury cars. Let's say they were going to different dealers. Let's say they were traveling mm -hmm. by different means. And so, you know, I studied that and put together different Mm -hmm. plans and everything. And, and of course, uh, that was not hypothetical. It right. was uh, what turned out to be Lexus. So uh, that was a phenomenal experience being involved in literally the very first stages of Lexus. So you were there from the beginning. So you saw the logistics for said com luxury company that you didn't know what it was. Um, tell us about your involvement and really how you saw the company grow. It was really uh, a wonderful environment because it was like being at a small entrepreneurial startup company with just a few people. Only you weren't going to fail because you had the giant Toyota resources and commitment behind you. So it was the best of all worlds. You know, if you wanted to talk to somebody about, I don't know, parts operations, there was one person to talk to. <laughs> if wow, you wanted nice. to talk about yeah. the distribution system, there was one person to talk. Mm -hmm. And so decisions were, you know, thought out well, but, but quick. And, uh, it was just a, a really interesting environment to work. Was it known as Alexis before you knew the name or was it always Lexus to you? Because it was at one point named Alexis. It had well, several it, names, So yeah. it didn't have a name when, it when, when no my, name. myself and a handful of other people were starting it. It was uh, the F channel, I think they called it. Mm. I know they called it. And uh, Why did they call it the F channel? You can make up your Ooh, own answer on that. <laughs> that's, a good, that's a good question that I feel like is in the... In the, Lexus in the Bible, Kelsey. Yeah, <laughs> I don't think this is. A, I think it did stand, it stand for, for something. flagship. I flagship. Yeah. That's okay. what it is. But yeah, it didn't have a name at that point. And mm -hmm. then, and then when they did arrive at a name, there was some uh, other entities that sought to have us not use that name. Mm -hmm. <laughs> right. So yeah. that was actually uh, some tense moments. And you can imagine so for the dealers because right. You know, everybody's investing all this money and and time and and reputation on launching this brand, and it had been revealed and everything. And then you know, if if there had if a decision had not gone our way, I mean, can you imagine? Yeah. What kind of recovery that would entail? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, especially because if you think about what the cost that goes into, and we we decided we weren't going to have that many dealers because we wanted it to be kind right. of exclusive, right? So these individual dealers across the United States had to make this investment into this massive dealership for this. There wasn't an entire line of cars either, oh, right? Oh, no. It was and like... It, it, that's right. And not only was there not an entire line of cars, but when these dealers were chosen and committed to spending their millions of dollars, <laughs> yeah. to, they didn't really have a lot of information on, no. on the car we launched with. So yeah. they, they that's, that's the strength of, I think, Toyota, number one, mm -hmm. knowing that Toyota was you know, whatever plans we, we launched were well thought out, but it's the reputation and the and knowing that this was this was gonna be a good plan. But I my hat's off to them for yeah. for making that kind of commitment. But you know, you're right. I mean if you think about everything from, you know, the architecture of a building to mm -hmm. all the way down to business cards to to everything centered around the name of a franchise, can you imagine if that suddenly got yanked out from under. Right. Like, yeah. Tyler, hey, I'm thinking about starting a car company. They're going to be really cool and people are really going to like them. You want to buy a dealership? Yeah. <laughs> I'm in, Kelsey. Only cool, because it's you. It's a cool million. Yeah. <laughs> Just, I'll take two. <laughs> Dave Illingworth, who I, I think you know um, or know of anyway. He's going to be on the podcast. That's fantastic because <laughs> he's uh, he's a wonderful guy and uh, he was there, you know, obviously launching right. it. You know, he said something once uh, to to us all in some setting. I forgot, but it's like to you know to be involved in a launch, the the creation and launch of a new auto brand. I mean, that's 
you only get to do that maybe once in life. Right, you know, exactly. If you're lucky, you know. There's no time like the present. So let's give Dave a call so he can tell us firsthand what it was like launching Lexus almost 30 years ago. Toyota of Warsaw, may I help you? Hi, may we be connected with Dave Illingworth, please? Just a moment. Dave Illingworth. Hi, Dave. It's Allison Powell from Toyota Motor North America Podcasting. Allison, how are you today? I'm very well, thank you. How are you? Excellent. I'm talking to Dave Illingworth. Illingworth was formerly Senior Vice President and Chief Planning and Administrative Officer, a central figure in the team that launched Lexus in North America. His name came up in every interview we did about the history of Lexus. He is currently a Toyota dealer in Indiana, a return to his Toyota roots. If you want to know what makes Lexus tick, you have to talk to Dave. So we sought him out. When he started at Toyota in 1980, it was still a small company, selling only between three to 400,000 vehicles a year. When I was interviewing, I got to drive one of their cars. It was a Toyota Celica. And I remember driving out of the parking lot thinking to myself, my gosh, this is a great car. Then I really got excited when I realized the quality of the cars and the quality of the company. And so I uh, took an opportunity with Toyota back in 1980 and started with the company. I think it was in May of 1980. was with them for, what, 28 years. It was a wonderful ride, a great company, and a wonderful opportunity. And the opportunity came up that uh, Toyota was starting this luxury car company that was a very secret company, and nobody was supposed to know about it. But anyway, when the management started looking around for somebody to run it, uh, I was the only sales guy who had sales experience in the field, had market rep experience, and also had customer relations experience. So that's how I got selected to be with Lexus when it started out back in the very early 1987. There were only five people in the company at the time. And we launched the company by uh, September of 1989. I stayed there another couple of years. And then I moved back over to Toyota to run the Toyota division. And then I learned that I uh, advanced from there into a senior management position in administration over a lot of different areas of the company. So it was a wonderful opportunity and a great ride. And I learned a lot about people. And I learned a lot about cars. And uh, it's a great organization with great dealers and a great company. Well, you've just helped describe why in every interview we've done for this, your name has come up to the point where we just say, all roads lead to Dave Illingworth. Well, well that's great. But uh, I always tell everybody that uh, it was a really a team effort. I just happened to be in the right place at the right time. The other two words that come up in every interview about the luxury brand are Lexus Covenant. It sounds serious, mystical, like Indiana Jones is looking for it if Indy were into luxury. And Illingworth wrote it. We're very interested in talking about what inspired the creation of the Lexus Covenant. Can you talk a little bit about why you came up with that, the story behind it, and how it operates today? Well, back at the rack right before, I think it was early 1989, and we were getting ready to launch the uh, division in about six to nine months, you know, we just got to thinking about who we are and what we are and what we're all about. What was always impressed me so much about Toyota was the engineers and the commitment of senior management in Japan and senior management in the U.S. to do things right and to really make an all-out effort to have the finest car that was ever built at the time. And uh, I think there's a lot of uh, sense of urgency on our part to really define who we are and what we are and what we're trying to accomplish. I, it was just one morning I walked out and uh, Linda Morisako at the time was my assistant. Has been, you know, she was with me for quite a while. And I just went out and dictated it. I mean, it wasn't, there wasn't much to it. I don't know. I just sat down and I said, okay, Linda, and I just started saying it and talking about it. We fine-tuned a little bit. I gave it to the advertising agency and the marketing people, and they looked at it, kind of shrugged their shoulders and said, well, okay, that's all right. You want to do it. And nobody really thought too much about it. For those of you who don't, like Dave and many other Lexus dealers, carry a laminated copy of the Covenant in your pocket, it says, 
Lexus competes in the luxury automotive industry, the most prestigious race in the world. Lexus history and experience, gained over more than two decades, has culminated in the creation of our automobiles, the finest ever built. Lexus will win the race because Lexus will do it right from the start. Lexus will have the finest dealer network in the industry. Lexus will treat each customer as we would a guest in our home. If you think you can't, you won't. If you think you can, you will. We can, we will. But the reason it came to life and the reason it meant so much to the company was because of the recall that happened on the cruise control a couple months after we launched the company. And that's when we looked at the covenant and said who we are and what do we, how do we really conduct ourselves in business? And in talking to the dealers and to all of the people in the company, we recited the covenant to them so they understood why we were taking this action because I think at the time we only had one or two cars that had this problem. So we decided if we are who we say we are and we are what the covenant says we are, then we do the right thing. And so the covenant came to life because of that. And it just has lived ever since. The customer service efforts on that recall, at least in my understanding, were extraordinary. And they must have been extraordinary for the time. Did you hear a lot from uh, American car makers sort of scratching their head over why you would work so hard over something that affected a very few cars? The reason we worked so hard is we were scared to death. We had done all this work, all this investment. Everybody had tried so hard that we didn't want this to derail us and really cause us problems. So we probably dramatically overreacted, but we did it because we didn't want to make a mistake. We wanted to handle it properly. And so we went to extraordinary efforts to take care of the customers, to tell everybody what was happening, to communicate what was happening, to do it in an organized way. It turned out that it really helped us establish ourselves as putting the customer first. So that effort combined with the covenant really kind of set the tone for who we were. And even from the very beginning, we were always talking about separating ourselves from the rest of the competition by putting the customer first and how we could do that. And when you looked at what the engineers were doing and what the company was doing back in Japan, and the effort that was being made to make this car truly exceptional. We felt in the United States, since we were gonna launch the car, we had to make a superhuman effort to pick the right dealers and to get customer first uh, aspect to delivering and servicing a car above everybody else to basically match the effort that was being made in Japan to produce the car of such high quality. So we were trying to uphold our end of the bargain And I think what happened is when we had the cruise control problem, Japan and the United States reacted in concert to really put the customer first. And in the end, it it helped us. It helped us establish our reputation. The creation, the development, um, all the exploration in advance of the Lexus, there were so many obstacles. How did overcoming those obstacles change you as a manager, as a a person? The basic thing that changed in me was that I realized how much of our success relied on other people and how much of our success relied on a team effort by everybody in Japan with the wholesale organization and with the dealer body to be successful. It took really everybody. And I don't think that any one person can drive it or make it happen. Everybody has to believe, everybody has to have a purpose, and everybody has to be trying to accomplish the same goal. And there was so much money at stake and so much pressure at stake and so many naysayers that said it couldn't be done that you kind of had to just focus and pull together and work as a team. We had the basic product and We had very good dealers and we had good marketing plan and it all came together and we were quite fortunate and blessed that it worked. Did you ever think, what if this doesn't work? No, I mean, (laughs) you couldn't, you couldn't do that. You just couldn't allow yourself to go there. You just had to always assume that it was going to work. 
And I think when you saw the product and you saw the dealer body coming together and you saw the enthusiasm, I don't think there was any really any question that we thought it would work because the basic fundamental product was really sound and you need that to start with. Can you tell us in your own words why Toyota embarked on the project of creating a luxury brand? The chairman at the time, Easy Toyota, and Dr. Toyota, the president of the company, Toyota had been a business that was approaching 50 years. My understanding is that they believed that the company was producing the finest volume automobiles in the world. And I think that's probably true. I think Toyota's are the finest quality, highest quality cars produced. And they felt it was time to actually extend that into the finest luxury car. They had a car in Japan called the Crown, which was an upscale car, but it wasn't a car that would be accepted globally or recognized by other manufacturers around the world as a truly first-class luxury automobile. And so it was their decision back in the mid-80s that the company should build this car and it should be the finest luxury car built up to that time. They made the decision to do it, put together the engineering talent, and uh, started out and accomplished their goal. Why do you think luxury is important or necessary? We can get along quite well without it. We've got excellent cars, excellent products that are not considered in the luxury level. What role do you think luxury plays in our lives? Well, I think it's an aspirational product. I think everybody wants to succeed and everybody wants to be successful. And I think the key to the Lexus product was that we tried to uh, split split the market. At the time, Cadillac and Lincoln were the major players in the market, but they are Their styling was rather traditional, and their ride was rather soft. And uh, the Germans were also at a higher end of the market, but they were, their styling was more European, and their ride was more sports car and hard, hard, hard handling type of vehicles. The Lexus product split the middle. We tried to be in between and give the customers an aspirational vehicle that were driving Toyotas that they could move to a higher class car, but didn't have to pay the price of the German products or the European products. And at the same time could have a more younger, youthful looking car that wasn't as traditional as the domestic manufacturer. So we were trying to split the market. So when you say it was a luxury car, it's true it's a luxury car, but it was really trying to give the buyers something that was reasonably priced that would give them an aspirational vehicle to go to. And we really, I know, eventually I think what happened is the markets kind of merged. But when you say it's a luxury car, there are cars in the lineup that are very expensive. But I think there are also cars in the lineup that are more reasonably placed for people that they can be asked, that they can try to achieve. And so I think if you look at the top end of the Toyota market, in the lower end of the Lexus market today, you'll see there's a lot of crossover in there. Thinking now, compared to Lexus, American luxury cars, and certainly, you know, in the 70s and 80s, were sort of absurd. I mean, they were so over the top, and you just kind of slid around on them because they were so, you know, the seats were big and slippery, and there was all kinds of extras. Were you part of the team that looked at the habits and ways of the American luxury buyer to kind of figure out what else they might like? I was on a panel at the University of Michigan with uh, the head of the Cadillac division, the head of the Lincoln division, and myself. And it was in Ann Arbor. And the panel was a discussion with their business school about the car market and what Lexus is going to do to the car market. The managers for Cadillac and Lincoln were all adamant that Lexus would not take any of its buyers. And in that panel, I was asked, are you going to take any of their buyers? And I said, no, we're, that isn't our buyer. And it's true, it wasn't. 
we were really going after a different buyer than the Cadillac and Lincoln buyers. But what we knew that they were having trouble coming to grips with is their buyers were all older and we were going after a younger buyer. So when we started out, we were looking for the younger, middle-aged, aspiring young person who would look for a car that had all the attributes, but none of the baggage of the German's hard ride and none of the traditional styling and soft ride of the domestics. We were trying to shoot down the middle and give a fair price because we felt the Europeans were overpriced. We went down the middle and we succeeded because uh, I don't think we tried to get the Lincoln and Cadillac buyers. And we were really were trying to be aspirational and get part of the Mercedes and BMW buyers, but we were trying to get them at a fairer price with a softer ride. It wasn't as hard as Germanic as their cars. You were uh, pretty involved in the naming of Lexus. Uh, can you tell us that, that story from your perspective? And if the judgment had gone against you, did you have, what other names did you have kind of cooking on the back burner? Well, I think, uh, first of all, I, we always felt that the lawsuit against us on the name was frivolous and unfounded because at the time, and I wasn't part of this meeting, this was happened before I became part of the division. So it happened right after I got there, the naming. But one of the finalist names for the division was Alexis, A-L-E-X-I-S. And the problem was that uh, back at that time, there was a television program called Dynasty. And there was a woman on the program, a fictional woman named Alexis, who was a nasty lady. And so everybody was concerned about calling up Alexis because of the reputation of this woman on the TV show. So one of the people, John French, in the room, as I understand it, said, well, why don't we drop the A and change the I to U and call it Lexus, L-E-X-U-S. So it was a totally made-up word. But everybody liked the way it looked, it sounded, and it had a feel to it of luxury. That didn't mean anything. So the attorneys at the time looked at it and said, yeah, that does, there's nothing out there like this, so there shouldn't be any problem. There was a number of weird names like Luxor, L-E-X-O-R, uh, and L-E-X-U-S, and things like that that we could have used. But at the time, the chairman of the board was given the opportunity to name all the cars. And he liked cars names that started with a C. So that's where he came up with Camry, Celica, Corolla, and all these C names on the Toyota cars. And the C name they had picked for Lexus was Celsior, C-E-L-S-I-O-R, which I think if we had not won the Lexus lawsuit, Lexus probably would have been called that because when they eventually lost the car in Japan, they lost it as a Celsior. But literally three or four days before we had to make the decision to change the name, the Federal Appeals Court in New York ruled three to nothing against the ruling against us and hadn't even put out a written statement about it. They just made a public announcement of it before the written approval came out because they knew we were out of time. And my feeling is because the appellate judges knew that the ruling against us was just not correct. And uh, so they overruled it. I'd say we saved the name by somewhere between three to five days and we would have had to change it. So it was that close. A lot of credit has to go to the senior management in Japan who did not panic and make us change the name. And an awful lot of credit to saving the name has to go to Yuki Togo, who was the president of Toyota in the USA at the time. And he absolutely refused to give in. So we had to go all the way to the court, all the way to the end to save the name because he was so convinced that we were right. And so all of senior management at TMS, uh, Bob McCurry, and Yuki Togo and all those people, everybody was committed to the name. And quite frankly, I was scared to death because I didn't know what, I mean, you spent all this time on Lexus 
if you'd have been about six months from launching the car and had to change the name, how would you have any market identification or anything like that? So it was a close call and took a lot of guts to hang in there, but it did work out okay. Were the cars in production at that point? Not yet, but as I recall, we were about six weeks away. That We got the decision, I think it was in March, and they were going to start producing in June. So we were right up against it on doing the badging and stuff like that. So everything was put in place. So if we lost it, they would have been able to get it going, but it would have been it would have been close. As you would know so well, we're, we're about to uh, come up on the 30th anniversary of Lexus next year. What does that mean to you that it's been 30 years? How does it how does it feel to realize it's been 30 years since since all that happened? Well, I feel a lot older. <laughs> and I, 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 notice, I notice I don't move as quickly. And, uh, I fall asleep quicker at night. So, But it's remarkable to see the progress of the cars, of the dealer body, how much the market has changed. And yet, it still comes down to people, people caring about other people, about uh, the dealers and the factory people, and the engineers all caring about the customer that they're trying to serve and putting the customer first. That doesn't change. No matter what happens, that doesn't change. And as long as you keep the focus on the customers and the people, then you'll do okay. If you're trying to just make money, you're not gonna do it. You gotta put the customer first. And uh, so no matter what happens, that's the key is putting the customer first. We also had the opportunity to talk to Ed Laukas, Group Vice President, Toyota Marketing, about his early career in Lexus and what it was like in the early days of a customer service model that had never even been seen before in the U.S. I mean, until Lexus, would a customer have even had the opportunity to throw the keys to their house to a technician making a repair? For that, you need house calls. And that's just one of the innovations Lexus brought to the table when they launched in 1989. I started actually with Lexus in 1989, and I started right before we sold our first car. So it was a very, very exciting time, but it was also a very anxious time as well, I would say, because the luxury business especially wasn't very good back then in that time in 1989. So Mercedes was struggling, BMW was struggling, Cadillac was struggling. So the luxury makes were struggling, and then we show up with a $36,000 Japanese luxury vehicle. So That seems like a good idea. Yeah, right? All right. And a lot of the, you know, the naysayers and the auto riders and those people came back and said, Toyota's out of their mind. There is no market for a Japanese luxury car. And here we are 30 years later almost. And and here we are, exactly. So, uh, and, uh, you know, obviously the success of Lexus is... uh, is documented everywhere, and uh, so, and really, where that where that came from was uh, when we were very early on in uh, late 1989, we had a major recall. So here we were, three or four months into launching this brand new car, which again, a lot of the naysayers, auto writers, and and the the, the talking heads of the world said, uh, Toyota has no business bringing a luxury car, right. and we have a recall. So, and that was on not just one item; it was actually three items. So we didn't have very many dealerships that were running at the time because uh, we were in mm-hmm. construction phase at most of the stores. So a lot of the cars that were being sold were sold uh, for people that people that had followed and were really excited about the launch of this new car. Yeah. And that had come from many miles in many cases to buy this car. Wow. So now we had to figure out how to perform this recall. So what we ended up doing is we ended up going out and in many cases doing these recalls either in a Toyota dealership mm-hmm. that was existing. Nearby. Mm-hmm. We actually would rent spaces in a gas station and do the recall wow. there. There were even cases where we would do it in somebody's house. There is one story since you want, since you like stories. We love stories. So the, the, one, the one story is in northern Wisconsin. I called the gentleman and he had a, a brand new LS400. He said, so my business is in town. Just tell the guy to come up and let me know when he's coming. And we didn't have cell phones back then. So right. he had to call yeah. everything on landline. So... The field technical specialist was going up there, and uh, he gets a hold of the guy at the guy's house, and he calls me in the early afternoon, 
And the phone you know, lights up and, you know, there's no caller ID or anything. Right. So you just answer the phone. and The good old so, days. <laughs> exactly. And uh, I remember the guy very well. He's, a matter of fact, just retiring now from the Lexus Central area. But uh, he calls me and he said, so, Ed, I got the recall done on this car. And I said, oh, great. That's great. How's the guy doing? He goes, well, he's not home. I said, well, what happened? He said, well, I came to his house. He opened up the garage. He had a, he has a, about 20 cars in his garage. Mm-hmm. He has a lift and everything. So I did the recall. And he said, when I was halfway doing it, he said, oh, I got to go to town for a little while. So just let yourself in the house. And there's some food in the refrigerator. If you want to make yourself a sandwich, just help yourself. And uh, if you're done, before I get back, you know, just let yourself out. And, you know, I appreciate it. And I love my Lexus. And uh, take care. And I'm like, (laughs) what? That's just spectacular. That's so, great. You know, so that's, that's, how, a, that's how much they trusted uh, they trusted us then. So it was pretty cool. And that's one of the one of the amazing stories. So. That's great. And that's how personal the customer service is, right? Yeah, it really that really is what set the benchmark for customer service with Lexus. That was that that recall is. Uh, I think there's a lot of books that have been actually been written about that. So. Yeah. What was your role at that point when you started with Lexus? So I was a district service manager. So my job was to go out and uh, help the dealers that were under construction, make sure that they had the best service department, uh, help them with tools and equipment. Uh, you know, they were basically starting over. This wasn't uh, an existing franchise, so they had to build everything from the ground up. And there really were no service customers. I mean, they were just coming in the early customers for, you know, inspection or checkup or tile rotation or that right. type of thing. So, you know, most service departments in the early days, they did a lot of uh, vehicle prep and they also did a lot of car washes because many of the Lexus dealers in the early days also did car wash on demand. Some of them still do. Yeah. And so you could show up anytime and, you know, get your car washed. That's the thing, especially on Saturday mornings, I feel like. When I lived in Illinois, I mean, the Lexus dealership was lines going out the, you know, parking lot waiting right. for the... It, when did that become a thing, the car washes? It started off just car wash on demand, basically, mm-hmm. is what it was. And then I think because it got so busy in the service departments as the... Units in operation continue to grow, and we had more and more customers that some dealers transformed it over and to turned it into like a Saturday breakfast. Mm. So uh, like Breedham and Lexus in Glenview, in Glenview, Illinois, would it be close to where you were? So they had a catered breakfast, and they would cook breakfast and everybody and then get a car wash. And it was their chance to be able to reconnect with customers, talk to them, check in with them, show them new cars, make sure their car was operating perfectly, and you know, just continue to establish the relationship. And they carry that through to today. Yeah, and it's still going on in many stores. Absolutely. I hope you enjoyed hearing these stories as much as we enjoyed telling them. Join us on the next episode when there'll be more untold tales from Toyota.